When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Hazel's Story, an epic saga podcast. We are here to dive deep into the panels and pages of Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples' comic book masterpiece, unpacking the amazing characters, themes, and weirdness in this grand space opera. I'm Alan. And my name's Abu. And we're back, episode three. I took an extra week off there because the holidays will do what the holidays will do, but we're so excited to be here with another episode and another set of three chapters. We're diving into chapters seven, eight, and nine, the first half of volume two. So much happens in this. Like as I was reading through these chapters again, I was just like, ah, characters, plot, characters, plot, like so much world being built. I I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, so much to dive into. And I remember texting you over the holidays that it's been so long since I've read some of these earlier chapters and volumes that it kind of feels like reading it like new again. Some of the twists are getting to me still. (laughs) Oh no, it's so good. I did another reread before we're doing our reread now. So my read I'm doing now is actually my fourth time through and there's still little things I catch. There's still like plot things that like surprise me and just little turns of phrase and the art. Just like the art keeps punching me in the face. Yeah, definitely. And that's what this podcast is about. So before we jump in, let's take care of some housekeeping. First and foremost, A little spoiler notice, this is a read-along series, so the goal here is that we won't spoil anything that happens in future chapters. So if you're a new listener, we hope that this podcast will enhance your first time jumping into this incredible story, and if you're a returning reader like us, we're hoping that our deep dive conversations will point out some of those tiny details, the incredible artwork that you missed on your first, second, or your 15th read-through. Absolutely. So... For this episode, no spoilers past chapter nine, but obviously if you haven't gotten up to chapter nine yet, don't listen to this show. (laughs) Go back and listen to our previous episodes about the earlier chapters. You don't want to spoil anything for you. The story here is so good and there's so many cliffhangers and so many twists that really do yourself a favor and uh, read the book before you listen to us talk about it. Also, on this show, we love to hear from you, our listeners. So we're always ready to get an email from you at hazelsstorypodcast at gmail.com. That's hazelsstorypodcast at gmail.com. There's two S's in a row. And we love to hear just like your reactions, your episode ideas, anything that you're thinking or feeling as you're listening to the show and reading the book. And we actually got uh, a listener email over the break that was just, yeah. I don't know, I like... <laughs> It was the very first email we'd ever gotten from a listener and it just like hit me right in the gut. And I was like, (laughs) oh, this is why we're making this show. Yeah. So this is the email that we got from our listener, Andrew. Hi, folks. I was very lucky to binge read Saga up to the current issue earlier in December. I liked the first episode of the podcast and I'm looking forward to more since right now I don't really have any friends to talk to about Saga, although I'm trying hard to get my friends to read it. My suggestion is to please discuss how we relate what happens in Saga to our own lives and our world. I would love it if you would explicitly bring up issues of race and gender. I'm a mixed race kid, so I was immediately drawn to Saga's story of navigating two cultures with a body that doesn't quite fit within one category. Luckily, I didn't have two governments trying to erase my existence, but the story is a powerful metaphor. Oh my God. I, Andrew, thank you so much for writing to us and for writing to us with like, it wasn't even answering any of the prompts we sent about like episodes that you wanted us to dig into, but just hearing people's personal connections yeah. to this story, that idea that it's like all epic grand sci-fi fantasy, it's not about like the galaxy far, far away. It's about how you relate to it personally and how you see yourself reflected in it. And this was a facet to it that I'd never even thought about of the sort of representation of people caught between worlds. And I absolutely appreciate Andrew sharing that with us. And we definitely have shared the parts that resonate with us as we have gone through these chapters and would love to hear more from you, the audience about like, what do you find in this story where you're like, that's me. I feel so seen. Yeah. Like, yeah. Send us an email. We, we, we can't wait. Absolutely. Andrew is out here setting the example for the rest of our listeners. And 
I will say I'm a little envious that he is caught up on all 54 chapters just a month before 55 comes out. He did not have to wait three years for the story to continue. So, you know, just a a short 42 months later, we're finally going to get some more story. It doesn't sound like you've been counting the days or hours at all, Alan. Totally normal. But that is all in the future. For today, we are here to do a brief summary of the chapters for this episode three, which is, of course, chapters seven, eight, and nine. The first half of volume two, we're going to do a brief summary of these chapters and then do a couple key takeaways that we found after going through them, and then finally wrap up as we always do with our favorite panels and our favorite quotes from these chapters. So let's get into it. Starting off with chapter seven, we open up with Hazel's narration over a flashback scene to Marco's childhood. And first and foremost, before I say anything else about this chapter, that is the cutest dog slash goat I've ever seen in my life. I want that dog. I'm so envious of Marco's childhood. I hadn't thought about it before, but looking at this dog, this dog is not dissimilar in appearance to your dog, with the exception that this dog has horns. Yeah. Like, that the breed of dog is like whatever the wreath version of a Shiba Inu is. I think that's what that is. Yeah. I think you're correct. That is that is my dog with horns on it, and I love it. I love that for Marco. I love that for me. Abu has a Shiba Inu who sometimes, I'm, I'm sure at some point, will be on one of these recordings. What's your dog's name? His name's Koji, and he loves to sit in during these recordings. He's sleeping behind me right now, but he also likes to sneeze mid-recording, so I apologize <laughs> if you ever have to edit that out. Either way, we are in this flashback scene with Marco, and we get some very, very important context about Marco's childhood and his parents, namely that... His parents have not forgotten the atrocities committed by the Landfallians against the people of Wreath. They are very aware of the bloodshed caused by the enemies in this war. And we also get a panel where very intentionally the only words on that panel are never forget, which to me at least very clearly evokes 9-11 and the trauma around that. So just to put this conflict in context for us and how his parents feel about it, I think using the words never forget was very intentional here. Now, with that context in mind, we jump back forward to the present day where Marco introduces his Landfallian wife on this rocket ship tree to his parents who showed up in the previous chapter. Thankfully, we also learn that Marco's mom didn't kill Isabel. She just banished Isabel to the nearest planetoid. So thank God Isabel's still alive. She's just nearby. Marco immediately jumps into action and takes his dad's crash helm, which we learn is some sort of helmet-sword combo that opens a portal, and he does exactly that and leaps through it to the nearest planetoid to rescue Isabel. And his mom rushes after him, awkwardly leaving Alana alone with her father-in-law, who she is meeting for the very first time. And Alana, as usual, gets an iconic piece of dialogue here. She says, quote, Cool. So glad I got to do all of this in a towel. End quote. <laughs> well, and the, the best part for me is connecting this back to the way that this scene started at the end of the last chapter, which was not only is she doing this in a towel, she's doing this in a towel having gotten out of her first shower that she had gotten to take since before she gave birth. So right. like she was like finally relaxed, so calm. And then all of a sudden these people show up out of a portal And she finds out very quickly that they're her in-laws, and then all of a sudden she's alone with one of them, and he's staring at her as she's dripping wet in her towel. Yeah, not ideal conditions for your first meeting with the in-laws. No, well, and things very quickly get like sort of beyond general in-law awkward because Alana and Barr, which we learned is Marco's dad's name, have a conversation where they immediately invoke some of the terrible atrocities committed by (laughs) either side of Landfall and Wreath in this war. And like- one of the events that's referenced by Barr is what sounds like some sort of terrible war crime. And Alana's like, I wasn't even born when that happened. And so you see this is like generational trauma, which you're like, oh, you feel how intense this relationship is. But then you also get a little of the like sort of uncertain biological element because Barr is like immediately concerned if the baby is normal. 
right? Because no, nobody knows what happens when someone from Land falls and someone from Wreath have a kid. Yeah. And here is such a baby. So it's interesting to see, like, no matter how much prejudice he has towards people from this other planet, there is still that, like, grandfatherly devotion and love that immediately comes through. That was adorable to see. Although Alana is understandably suspicious, Bart asks about his granddaughter and she's just like, uh, I need you to back off, buddy. And the rocket ship tree kind of has her back in this moment. Vines spread out from the walls and actually trap a bar holding him in place. Meanwhile, we jump to the nearby planetoid where Marco and his mother, Clara, have teleported to. And his mother takes this opportunity to basically give him shit about Alana and for breaking this family heirloom, the sword that he broke in the previous chapter. We also learn that the will had apparently visited Marco's parents, which tipped them off. Wait a second. If there's a freelancer asking about our son, something must be wrong. Marco must be in trouble. And so they sold their house to get the cash to buy these very expensive crash helms that let them magic around, portal around places. And Marco reacts by saying, quote, no, how could you be so stupid? And Clara slaps him. And it's like this really emotional moment between them. And we get this sense of Marco and Clara's relationship. She's clearly the parent in the family who believes in tough love. But the parallels between what Marco and Alana are doing for Hazel and what Barr and Clara are doing for Marco are so obvious and heartwarming here. Both sets of parents are going to whatever lengths they need to, to take care of their children. Well, and to be fair, like, the sword is not just a family heirloom that Barr got in war one generation before. I can't remember. He says the sword was either a thousand years or a thousand generations yeah. old. Yeah. So that's some justified anger, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. your, your parents, 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 parent, right? That's older than most of the countries on the planet of the Earth, right? Yeah. So yeah. understandably, she'd have a little anger there. And then for... After he has destroyed this sword, this precious heirloom, he gets like all sad about a house. And so, of course, there's a little bit of that, like, you silly child, you yeah. don't know anything. The parent knows the ways of the world, et cetera, et cetera. But you're right. It, it all comes from love. However, we don't have any time to dwell on this generational parent-child squabble because all of a sudden a big bloody femur bone comes crashing down out of the sky. Uh-huh. Of course, in this comic, anytime there's a little bit of not anytime, but a lot of times there's a little bit of emotional tete-a-tete. We get some sci-fi weird shit to just sort of like break things up. And in this case, (laughs) I, this might be up there for my least favorite. And like, I've just looked at it again. Yeah. I have it pulled (laughs) up in front of me. And I, the least favorite page. And it's a, it's a single panel, full page that you get, which is like the femur crashes down (laughs) and Marco pulls his mom out of the way. And then it goes out way wide in one of those very cinematic shots. And it's, you see a giant troll Cyclops thing with like, we'll just start from the top of the page. So it's got three eyes, totally naked. Mm -hmm. And then you get about two thirds of the way down and there's just a little tiny penis. And the biggest (laughs) hanging testicles that are all crusted over, which is like, it would be bad enough that they were just like, hanging testicles Uh but the fact that they seem like encrusted with some yellowish substance is really just where it went too far for me i was just i just and then the dialogue at the bottom of that panel just says mother please which is some amazing understatement writing brian came on at his best so good so good yeah we're here to celebrate this story and we would never do least favorite panels but (laughs) let's be honest this is it (laughs) yeah also props to you alan for really uh diving into that description I know I wrote, Alan, please describe <laughs> the troll in our script. I didn't actually think you would. And I love that you did that. Great job. Commitment. All right, moving on from troll testicles. In the next couple of panels, we get some Hazel narration over the scenes of Prince Robot the Fourth, who is currently flying the Stocks ship that he commandeered in the previous chapter. We also cut for a little bit to the Will, who is seemingly watching old sex tapes of him in the stock and he's doing other things but we'll let you figure that out on your own kids and hazel explains in this narration what her parents thinking is at this time she says quote we are small but the universe is not as long as we kept moving our pursuers would have little chance of finding us in the vastness of space 
Sooner or later, they'd have to give up. We'd never be forgiven, but maybe we'd be forgotten. End quote. That sort of explains what the game plan is for Alana and Marco at this moment. It's also a really good structural device in the way that it's written, because basically like that's all of the exposition that needs to be done. And then the rest of this chapter and most of these chapters is just all plot. It's just all like action thing after thing after thing happens. So yeah. you get that like, okay, everybody's trying to catch up with everybody else. Everybody's chasing everybody else. Let's see how this all plays out. So we quick cut back to Alana and Barr on the rocket ship tree. And there's a little bit more narration actually that's interesting because you think normally like Hazel's narration would cut off there, but it finishes up after that quote that you just read by saying, still for all the royal automations and deranged mercenaries out there, only one thing can really destroy a family. And we all know what that is, right? And then it just cuts right into the scene where you're like, well, wait, mm. no, what? What? Right. What like, is that? I don't know. What and is like, it? I, I don't. I don't know. So it's like one of those weird <laughs> foreshadowing things that you're like, I guess he'll fill this in later. At least I hope that the story fills it in later. Yeah. I guess we'll find to find out. But so now we have Alana and Barr hanging out in what <laughs> Alana says in this page. She thought it was the engine room, but maybe it's more like the kitchen as she's eating some sort of like citrusy fruit, which is great. And then Barr says that he's going to get himself out of the vines that he's been trapped in with a spell. But Alana says, no, you have to use a secret for that. And... Barr is like, I have secrets. And then Barr's secret that he says out loud is, I have less than a month to live, which it becomes clear he's never said to anybody else before, especially his family. Alana kind of freaks out. In response, Barr casts another spell, like a sleep spell on Alana. Alana's last words she says before she falls asleep are, don't hurt Hazel. And then Barr gets to show more of that grandfatherly love by saying, Hazel, beautiful goddamn name, which is just amazing grandfather uh, family parent love stuff and that's the end of chapter seven yeah yeah and again it it's ends on yet again a full page spread it's this overhead shot where we're looking down on a curled up sleeping alana and bar holding his granddaughter something about the framing there combined with the dialogue i don't know it makes me quite emotional it's just <sighs> there's so much family love amidst the giant troll testicles yeah it's great. And I strongly recommend that Netflix do think about this cinematically, if you get my meaning. Yes. All right, let's move on to chapter eight. This chapter starts with, yet again, another flashback sequence. This one is not that long ago, actually. It's back when Alana was just a lowly soldier in the Landfallian army stationed on Cleve. And at the moment, she is gushing about this book by D. Oswald Heiss that she has just completed. She's ranting and raving about it to an extremely uninterested co-worker. This really reminds me of me trying to talk Dune to anyone that I know. I can relate. <laughs> she then goes to check on a noisy prisoner who turns out to be Marco. And we realize this is about to be when they first meet. He is speaking Esperanto at this point. Again, Alan, you did some sleuthing in a previous episode and realized that blue language that a lot of the characters from Wreath speak is actually just Esperanto, and you can slap that in Google Translate and uh, figure out exactly what they're saying. It's a real language. What Marco is saying here is basic prisoner things. He says, quote, please give me my rings back. And then when Alana faces him, he says, I need to talk to you. But obviously, they don't have those translator rings at the moment, and so she doesn't understand what he's saying. So he tries to speak to her and stumbles out the words, quote, I and you, not as alone as we feel, end quote. And as far as pickup lines go, not great, because Alana whacks him with the butt of her rifle, and we get an amazing bit of Hazel narration here. Quote, in romantic comedies, this is called a meet-cute. It's so good. The timing for the whole thing, it's funny, it's moving, and then she cracks him in the face. And you can get it as one of those reveals where you flip the page and like you just see her. She not only just like smacks him in the face, like it's real bloody. It like knocks some teeth out and shit. You're like, oh, yeah. that's prisoner abuse. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Got it. Well, good to know that there's low-key war crimes kind of being committed by everybody all the time, but we know that they fall in love eventually, so I guess it's okay. <laughs> so then we cut back to the rocket ship tree, and Grandpa Barr has put baby Hazel in her crib, which I assume is like a crib that the tree formed. The tree is sort of seems to have this like 
organic wood that can kind of grow into anything. I love that they don't even explain how the rocket ship tree works or functions or anything. It's just sort of like the room of requirement in Harry Potter where anything they need, it just sort of like pops up with, which it's like great narrative technique and also it looks cool. So then Alana wakes up. We realize that she's still really weak from the spell and that she is worried that like he wants something terrible with her daughter. And so he's super worried, but the rocket ship tree seems to have like decided he's a cool dude while she was asleep. So she goes back to sleep. And I guess we're left to believe that like, okay, everything's cool. And then we get to go back to the planetoid with our friend. And just when I thought it was as bad as it could get with the pictures of the giant <laughs> troll and his testicles, we get a reverse angle shot from underneath his legs looking in from behind. And I'm not going to describe it again. I'm just going to leave it at that. Fiona Staples, how dare you? Clara wants to kill this giant because we've gotten the sense that she's like a super intense warrior and she's never met a problem that she didn't want to destroy. But remember, Marco has this pledge of nonviolence, plus he has recognized he's kind of a woke dude and he's like, hey, this is like a native of this planet. We're trespassing on their land. We shouldn't kill it. So he's like, let's just bind it up. I have these translation rings. We can talk to it and see if it can help us, you know, find our friend that we're trying to find. This, however, when he brings up the rings, leads to a discussion about Gwendolyn, Marco's previous fiance, and causes Marco's mom to use what I imagine is something like a racial slur against Alana. She refers to Alana as an overgrown housefly, which seems like some sort of like racist epithet about the fact that she has wings, which causes Marco to shoot a lightning bolt at her and to say in the most badass way possible, this is the last time you ever say a cruel word about the mother of my child, please. I love that please at the end. I love that please. Because, you know, it's like when you're an angsty teenager and you snap back at your mom, but you're also still an angsty teenager and you instantly feel guilty afterwards. Oh, absolutely. And you're just like, we keep getting these little flashes of like just how much the conflict has created these rifts between these two planets. And it's not just like they're at war, like they hate each other. And like the hate is like very deep and has, I think, analogies to some racism we might encounter in our world. Like clearly there's like racist epithets that they hurl at each other, but Marco is not here for it. And he draws the line very, very clearly, which I think is what people should do with their racist relatives. (laughs) Right. Zap them with electricity. (laughs) (laughs) In the next scene, we jump back to the rocket ship tree and Alana wakes up with baby Hazel wrapped up in her arms and she finds a mysterious package at the foot of her bed. She reaches forward and opens the package. But before we realize what it is, we jump to a shot of Barr, who is at a some sort of spinning wheel contraption that the tree has created for him. And we learn that Barr is a seamstress slash armorer. And the project that he's working on at the moment is creating this protective clothing for his family. Protective and, might I say, incredibly fashionable. Alana has never looked better. <laughs> We also learn in this scene that Barr is sicker than we thought. He clutches his chest in pain, and Alana tries to pull him away from this spinning wheel. He says that he, he has come to terms with his illness. He has come to terms with the fact that he will die very soon, and he wants to focus on this work. She also asks why he has kept the secret. Why hasn't he even told his wife? And he tells her that he doesn't want his final days to be filled with pity and sorrow. He doesn't want this dark cloud to hang over his final days. He wants to spend them with the family that he loves. And that's both incredibly heartbreaking and also admirable from my view. Yeah, it shows the level of devotion that he clearly has to family, which has been extended through his immediate attachment to Hazel and just that dynamic of his character that he cares for family more than he cares for himself really comes across here in this gesture. Though I don't know. I don't know like if ultimately, in my experience, like keeping information from relatives never makes them feel better. So we'll see how that all pans out. Meanwhile, we're going to then cut back to a dialogue that has opened up on the planet where Marco and his mom are hanging out with our giant still naked friend who we've learned his <laughs> name is Fard the giant which I'm just going to point out rhymes with nard like I can't imagine that's a coincidence right so the giant is now laying down and they're having a conversation and Fard said some rather unpleasant things my favorite quote from Fard is Fard will eat your souls and piss them out Fard's anus which is <laughs> truly just like 
Right. Um, oh, I'm glad we got your favorite quote out of the way already. <laughs> yeah, that was clearly the best writing in the whole set of chapters is eat your souls, then piss them out of farts, anus. So- in addition to that delightful refrain, they also actually get some information out of Fard, which is that the planet that they're trying to find Isabel on is not actually a planet. It's an egg. And the egg is about to hatch, which I remember reading that and being like, what? Right. An egg what? can be a planet? <laughs> of course. There's magic in this world. So why couldn't there be an egg that was fully the size of a planet? I actually really love universes like this that do such a good job of mixing like techno futurism with magic futurism that yeah. we end up with like even a planet isn't what you think it is. So that's terrifying. But then we leave that cliffhanger and jump across space again to the beach where we've got our friend, the seahorse agent, talking to one of his other clients, presumably, who has one of the best handlebar mustaches I've ever seen. It looks like a <laughs> WWF character from the 80s, and I love it. This particular freelancer, though, is pissed because he hasn't gotten paid, presumably, by one of the two sides of the war that he's done some work for. And he's yelling at his agent, why can't I get paid? And the agent is saying something that will sound familiar to any freelancer, which is, ah, you shouldn't really complain about not getting paid on time because it'll make you sound ungrateful and then you won't get any more freelance work, which is, Ugh. I Ugh. see you there, Brian Kavon. Just a little bit of a commentary on freelance work and how freelancers get treated like shit. And uh, well played, Brian. Well yes, played. well played. You love to see it. The seahorse agent then uh, unceremoniously just hangs up on this freelancer because he's got a much more important call from someone at Wreath High Command. And this someone is demanding to know about the will. Why hasn't the will completed this job that they've hired him to do? And the seahorse manager is making all of these excuses, and the person on the phone is simply not having it. The person demands to know where is the will. I will go talk to them myself. The seahorse manager does grow a bit of a backbone. Do seahorses have backbones? I don't know, actually. And he he refuses, basically, <laughs> to tell this person where the will is currently located. And we get a very sort of classic cinematic moment of, I'm on the phone with you, psych, I'm actually right behind you, dumbass. And when the seahorse manager turns around in surprise, we get one more bombshell cliffhanger ending saga. You're doing it to me again a full page spread of Gwendolyn. It's absolutely the best. I love like that gag of like talking to somebody on the phone. Oh, what are you going to do to me? Come here and like do it to my face. And then you're like, yeah, I'm right here, asshole. Yeah. <laughs> it's delightful. And that's the end of that chapter. And you're like, fuck. So then of course, when chapter nine starts, you expect a resolution to this amazing cliffhanger. And then chapter nine starts with, a completely different scene because Brian Kavon <laughs> loves this technique. So we get this full page panel that's Mama's son standing there pointing a gun at the reader. And then behind her are these two bodyguards and they're bodyguards in the most literal way in that they only have bodies and they have no heads and their faces are on their chests, including one who's sticking his tongue out of his belly button. They also are holding giant clubs that look in fact to just be giant pink dildos. So... I don't know why they don't have heads, but it's kind of awesome. <laughs> I love it. That they have eyes where their nipples <laughs> should be. So then after we take all that in, we cut back and we see that, oh, there's a standoff happening here. Apparently the will has gone back to Sextilian and is trying to get Slave Girl off. And after they have a little bit of a standoff, the two headless guys have their non-head heads explode. I don't know. There's like, they both get shot and it's <laughs> terrible. And then you see, oh my God, big reveal. It's the stock who actually shot them, having apparently recovered from her getting shot through the chest somehow. And we're like, oh wow, I guess this is wonderful. And then the will introduces Slave Girl to the stock and everything seems like it's hunky-dory. And then all of a sudden things fall off the rails and you're like, oh no, this is all just a dream slash hallucination that the will is having about what he wishes that he was doing. Instead, he's passed out on the ground and getting woken up by Gwendolyn, who... Apparently, the seahorse agent is not only shitty about getting his clients paid, he's also shitty about protecting their privacy <laughs> because he just gave up the will. So yes, Gwendolyn, she basically confronts him about his job, what he's doing, why he hasn't completed it, and tells him, hey, if you really want to kill Prince Robot IV, as I know you do, then you should also be completing your job because those two things align. You should be going after Marco and Alana as we have paid you presumably a large sum of money to do because Robot the Fourth is also hunting them. Throughout this conversation, the will sort of picks up on the fact that 
yes, Gwendolyn is doing her job. She works for Wreath High Command, but there seems to be a personal angle here as well. She's a little too invested in hunting down Alana and Marco for this not to be personal for her. Totally. He like picks it up kind of private detective style. They have this banter that goes back and forth that reminded me of a 1930s detective film where like blonde bombshell walks into the detective's office and they have a witty repartee back and forth and he's like figured it out. So then he basically says like, all right, I'll take your case, but it's going to be a lot more money and I need that money. Otherwise I can't do it. But then Lion Cat totally gives him up, which (laughs) is a thing that they make a joke about that apparently Lion Cat gives him up all the time, which makes you realize that like, oh, actually having a cat that's a lie detector around all the time would be super inconvenient because anytime you lied, he'd give you up too. But as a result, it's clear that he doesn't need the money to solve her case and find Marco and Alana. He needs the money to buy Slave Girl out of Sextillion. And once Gwendolyn understands that, she somehow, I realized only on this reading, my fourth reading, she immediately has a plan for how to do this that's kind of complicated. And she comes up with it literally off the top of her head, which is like, again, classic heist movie, private eye thing where people just have these caper-esque plans like ready to go. But it's still cool. She says she can get Slave Girl off of Sextillion without even having to fire a shot, basically. And all she needs is a telephone to make a phone call. The Will is super skeptical, but she goes for it. And she calls up Mama Sun there at Sextillion. Mama Sun answers and immediately Gwendolyn has a fake identity of a detective from Wreath Homeland Police who is looking for a missing Wreath girl who apparently, the report says, has had her horns sawed off and this missing Wreath girl is being passed off as someone from Landfall and they believe that as a result has been sold into sexual slavery. So... The implication here is that there is someone from Wreath who all of the Landfallian soldiers have been with at Sextillion and that this would be like a horrible prospect to them that they would have been cavorting, not with a child, that part would be fine, but the fact that it was a child from this other race, from this other planet, that they would all find disgusting, which has some layers of fucked up to it, but it gets Mama Sun's attention. Clearly she's like, oh fuck, I don't want anybody to know about this. Sure. You can have this girl back. I don't want her. We'll drop her off at this intergalactic truck stop, basically. You all can come pick her up there as long as you promise not to tell anybody about it. Yeah, an absolutely brilliant plan to pull off in a split second. Shows us just how smart Gwendolyn is. And Gwendolyn gets some excellent like poses in the art in those panels. You know, she even like tents her fingers at some point, like the way that all supervillains do when they're in the middle of an evil plan. Right. And you're like, okay, sh- this is a high level operator. She's got schemes on schemes on schemes. We should look out for her. Yeah, it's it's incredible how much Brian and Fiona do with such little content. Like one line of dialogue can tell you entirely what Marco's relationship with his mom might be. One pose that Gwendolyn takes here in just a panel or two can tell you so much about the way she approaches her work, her life, and her personality. It's incredible. For sure. Anyway, we continue and we cut then to a truck stop slash fueling station on a planet called Indica, which is this very orange, smoky, Mars-like planet where the Will and Gwendolyn land their ship. This is where they will be meeting up with the agents from Sextillion to hand off Slave Girl. As soon as they exit, though, it's clear that the handoff is not going to go smoothly because a couple of, are these squids? What are these guys <laughs> in suits? I don't even know how to describe <laughs> it. It's like, they're, they, they look like very cliched 1920s gangsters, like yeah. right down to the Tommy guns, except that like, instead of normal hands and feet, they have like five clawed scary monster hands and feet. And instead of regular faces, they have... I don't even know. It's like tentacles that come off where their nose would be. They look like sea cucumbers or something. (laughs) Yeah. It's one of those times where it's like, this isn't even in reference to something. Fiona Staples just like let her mind go nuts. Yeah, it's incredible. And in this scene, of course, a confrontation breaks out. One of these sea cucumber creatures makes fun of the Will's lance, calling it a laser sword, which to me is a clear reference to a Star Wars lightsaber. Yeah. And he whips that lance and fucks that guy up basically like splits him down the middle in two and we we realize just how truly deadly that lance is 
not even that he like splits him in two. He does it from like 20 yards away. <laughs> You're like, oh, seemingly this Lance, I guess we learn, has infinite range. And yeah. you can just like literally cut a guy in half from 20 yards away. Second gangster only gets holy fucking, presumably he's about to say shit out of his mouth before Lion Cat then like dispatches him. And you're like, oh, Lion Cat is full on a terrifying puma or something because not just a lie detector. Yeah. Definitely a full on big cat that can fuck people up. Incredible sidekick. Shouts to Lion Cat. The Will also charges the third and final gangster in this scene. And we learn that his cape can block bullets, which is dope. I loved that panel so much. <laughs> yep. The Tommy gun is firing full blast and the Will continues to charge, cape in hand, dodging those bullets. He gets up close to this last guy, but this last guy's a little bit tougher, grabs the Will by the neck, lifts him up, and things aren't looking good until Gwendolyn just zaps this dude with this red lightning electric thing that shreds him right through the abdomen. And even Lion Cat, who is currently in the middle of biting the face off of one of the gangsters, has to stop and stare in amazement because that was scary. Didn't know Gwendolyn could do that. You also get a little more info about how magic works because previous to now, all the spells we'd seen had just had some kind of casting cost that you had to offer that was like snow or a secret. But the will then says that casting a weather spell is dicey, which leads me to believe it's hard to control, but it also apparently shaves weeks off your life. So you learn that the magic has some sort of personal physical toll, yeah. which is why it needs to be used sparingly, much like whatever the super weapon is in your favorite video game. We also, there's one more shot before the scene ends. The Will points out that the sea cucumber face gangster is not dead. He is starting to plead for his life. So the Will hands Gwendolyn one of the Tommy guns and says, finish what you started. And then goes over to Slave Girl to try and help her. And the last shot we see of Gwendolyn is her pointing the Tommy gun at the gangster, presumably as she finishes him off. So we learn that like, she's not just some pencil pushing bureaucrat, like she'll take care of shit when she needs to, including up to killing people. Yeah. And now suddenly I'm really concerned about Marco and his ex. <laughs> so this chapter wraps up with one more scene. We are back on the Will's ship. Slave Girl and Lion Cat are curled up looking so cozy and so cute. I love that panel. And the Will and Gwendolyn are having a bit of an argument about next steps. What do we do next? How do we find Alana and Marco? This bickering back and forth wakes up Slave Girl, who ends the book on yet again another iconic saga cliffhanger by revealing that she can hear Gwendolyn's translation pendant talking to its friends across space, which we, of course, know are Alana and Marco's wedding rings, the translator rings. And the last panel of this chapter is a full-page spread of Gwendolyn and the Will and Slave Girl pointing right at the camera and presumably right towards Alana and Marco. It's so good. It sets everything up. When I got to the end of these chapters for this episode, it was so hard to not keep reading and <laughs> yeah. to not just like immediately go on because you're like, oh, this story has gotten so kinetic. It's a chase now, right? Like everybody's searching for something else and everybody's kind of searching for the same thing, but they're all having these parallel paths and tracks. Characters are hooking up with other characters. There's so much going down. I cannot wait for us to dig into it a little bit more. We'll take a quick break and we come back. We'll have our takeaways as well as our favorite lines and art from these chapters. All right, welcome back, folks. As always, let's dive into our takeaways from today's reading, and then we'll wrap up today with our favorite panels and quotes. So Alan, what is our first takeaway from today's reading? My first takeaway from this reading, I actually struggled a little bit with how to phrase this, but what I ultimately hit on is this book starts as very much the story of two star-crossed lovers, right? It's two characters, Alana and Marco. They're the core of this story. It's the reason why I have two Funko Pop characters on my desk, and it's Alana and Marco, right? Yeah. However, just this week, I added a third Funko Pop to my desk because I realized I was giving short shrift to the will. And that's the thing about this book is that like the further it goes along, the more you realize that we're going to keep getting well-rounded characters in this story. They're all going to develop. They're all going to give you more about their personality. And you're going to be able to sort of engage with all of them. 
as you go through. You're going to be getting background, development, history, emotional motivation elements for all of the characters. I mean, except for a few. Sorry, Seahorse Agent. I think that you're going to stay <laughs> stuck at NPC status. Like you're sort of just somebody for our main characters to interact with. But everybody else ends up, you know, getting a backstory and a motivation and an emotional range. It's just, just like an amazing achievement that Brian K. Vaughn pulls off that already by chapter nine of this story, we've got Marco, Alana, Marco's parents, the Will, Gwendolyn, all as main characters that we know something about and feel something about. And there's also Prince Robot, who wasn't even in these three chapters other than two frames of him flying in the stolen spaceship towards Hazel and Alana. That's how big the world is getting. And it just fucking rules. Yeah. Yeah. The cast is getting so big and... As we know, the bigger a cast gets, the easier it is to fumble. And I don't think, at least thus far, there have been any fumbles from Brian and Fiona. Like, all of these characters are so well-rounded. You can see yourself in so many of these characters. Speaking to Andrew's email from the top of the episode, you can't help but find yourself identifying with a lot of these characters. Like, I know the Will is a freelancer. He's a bad bounty hunter. He kills people for a living. Those are all things I don't identify with. But for some weird reason, I am just like drawn to the Will as a character. He's up there as one of my favorites. And I think that's a sentiment that a lot of readers, first-time readers, returning readers, feel about Saga. You will start to pick out from this large cast of characters, the ones that speak to you, the ones that stand out to you, and the ones that you start identifying with more and more. And I think that's just one of many reasons this story is so special. The cast is incredible. It's diverse. There's fully fleshed out character motivations and histories. And it's easy to put yourself in their shoes in this fantasy universe. It's funny that you just said literally in their shoes. One of the things I just noticed on reading these chapters this time is that Gwendolyn doesn't wear shoes. <laughs> and it's never explained. She just doesn't wear shoes. It's part of her badassery is that she has her getup that's like, you know, white high shouldered blazer, tube top, shorts, and just no shoes. Like that's... Then, but that means something about her, right? Yeah. Like you learn something. And it's also really interesting as you're talking about people's favorite characters. One of the things that I've always loved finding people who've read this story, talking to them about it, is everyone always has a favorite character. And interestingly, it's almost never Alana or Marco. Yeah. It's almost always one of these other characters that Alana and Marco collide with or are briefly in orbit with or, you know, are a serious part of the story. But it just shows and speaks to how good Brian K. Vaughn is at building the narratives around all these characters and how amazing Fiona Staples is at giving all of these characters full dynamic life through the art. No spoilers for anything, but my favorite characters from the series haven't even shown up yet. Yeah. And I think your favorite, favorite character from the whole series has also not shown up yet, but I don't want to assume. I just have a pretty good idea who I think your favorite is. Yeah. And we'll get to that when we get to that. Yeah. No. They haven't shown up yet, and that's incredible. As big as this cast already is, it's going to get bigger. And I just, returning to this idea that it can be so easy to fumble a story with this many characters or give some of the cast sort of the short end of the stick where they aren't fully fleshed out. The MCU took like half a dozen movies to build up to the Avengers and then to Civil War. Like right. they had to invest all this time and money and effort into getting people up to speed on these characters before making like the big collab film that included all of them. And here, just nine chapters into this story, we have a massive cast. And I, for one, am already deeply connected to many of these characters. And there's more characters to come. Like we said, our, our favorite ones haven't even made an appearance yet. And I think... That is just part of what draws me to this story is every single one of these characters has something that I can either relate to or empathize with or at the very least find interesting. Right. And there's no sense that like they're there just because there aren't more new creative directions they're taking it. This isn't this isn't Poochie from The Simpsons, right? Like it's not <laughs> like they're just adding characters in order to give the show more to do. It's really they each of these characters serves a purpose. And like, I've never heard him say this, but I would not be surprised if like this entire narrative, all of however long this story is, the character arcs for all of at least the like main eight or so characters was plotted out and like they knew what was going to happen all the way through. All right, let's talk about our second takeaway from today. Takeaway number two is that nearly everyone in this book seems to be motivated by some sort of past trauma. 
We have talked in previous episodes and previous takeaways about how this story will not pull its punches, how we will see the horrors of war, how we will see bloodshed. We're going to see guts. We're going to see these characters deal with this conflict, this galaxy-spanning conflict that is affecting all of them, high and low. And if you break down the characters so far that we've met, even in this large cast, there is a through line that the war has touched all of their lives, and they're all, to some extent, dealing with some sort of trauma, and it's a key motivator for their actions in these pages and panels and all this plot that we got in these three chapters. For example, starting with Marco's parents, it's clear from the very start of chapter seven with that flashback that the war is something that is deeply important to his parents. And obviously that adds a little bit of extra juicy drama to the fact that he married, quote unquote, the enemy, and not only married, but had a child with, quote unquote, the enemy. There's the extra layers of racism. There's the back and forth that Barr and Alana have about the war atrocities that both sides have committed. Alana, the younger generation, also throwing in like, I wasn't even alive when that happened. How is any of that my fault? Like, those are all conversations that in the real world people have. And it's interesting, too, to see that there is that trauma, but it shows also what happens with Marco's parents that that trauma motivates them more than even familial consideration. Because when they just thought that Marco was a kidnapped soldier in prison on Reef, they didn't sell their house to buy crashed helms and fly halfway across the universe, right? They only did that when they found out that Marco had gotten mixed up with somebody from the enemy in this war. So that shared cultural trauma is the ultimate motivator that causes them to act rashly and to sell their house, which is obviously hugely crushing to Marco. The look on his face, we've talked so many times about how Fiona draws faces in this book, yeah. but like uh. the look on his face is like his world has gotten destroyed. And they made that decision because they were motivated by this trauma and it ultimately leads them to do something rash. It's similar to in a much shorter time frame, the will is now locked in this revenge situation where the stock has been murdered and he is destroyed by his need for vengeance and it's thrown him off track. He's not working. He's totally fixated on committing the murder and killing Prince Robot. And it's just this like character over and over being held back by trauma they can't let go of, possibly to the level of it making their lives actively worse. They're making decisions that are self-destructive because they can't let go of this embedded, either very new or very old trauma. Yeah. And I would actually argue that perhaps Marco's dad is taking the first steps to letting go. Because he starts off as an incredibly suspicious character, and we're kind of on Alana's side when we first meet him. But as we get to know him and as the two connect, and then he creates this incredibly fashionable outfit for his <laughs> new daughter-in-law, who is, of course, part of the enemy... He's kind of shedding that, right? And I think, right. honestly, the motivator there for him is death. Like, he's got, he's got a deadline, and it's looming. And in the face of your ultimate demise, I think spending time with his son, with his daughter, and now his granddaughter, suddenly take precedent over whatever hatred he might have from the traumas of the war, whatever he might have done as a warrior, whatever atrocities that might be deeply seated in his soul don't matter in the face of death and in the face of his cute little granddaughter. I think he's maybe one of the only characters starting to move past his trauma. Well, it's the combination, I think, of him facing his own mortality combined with, because he's still pissed until he sees Hazel. But then once he sees Hazel, it kind of melts that. So I think it's his yeah. going out of the world combined with seeing new life come into the world. He gets that he can let go and, you know, accept something that maybe a week before he wouldn't have accept. He's able to transcend that. Most characters aren't, though. Gwendolyn is clearly, <laughs> yeah. like, stoked by this trauma of having been abandoned by Marco, and she can't move on with her life. You know, she has this excuse that she needs to track down these rings and that she's working for the Wreath government, and she's a government official, and this is a super important thing that she needs to do. But if she could have just, like, moved on with her life after Marco she would be happily chilling back on her home world, happy as can be, working her bureaucratic job. Instead, she's running around the galaxy literally having to commit murder yeah. because she couldn't let go of being jilted by this relationship that ended, which is not to excuse the way that Marco treated her because that was fucking shitty. But the fact that she's been traumatized by it and can't let it go really 
holds her and it causes her to be in situations that are self-destructive. All right, Alan, let's wrap up this episode. As always, we love to end by sharing our favorite panels from today's reading and our favorite quotes. I'll toss it to you first. What was your favorite panel from today's reading? So we've discovered now in our third episode that I apparently don't like following the rules (laughs) for these exercises because I'm going to break format a little bit and expand the definition of single panel or page Uh to include three covers. So the covers of each one of these chapters when they were published in single issue format were like each individually frameable works of art. And if you... We're reading these chapters in the collected volumes in the trade paperback version. The cover of chapter seven is what's on the cover of volume two. That's the picture of Marco covered in blood, holding his sword down while there's like wings and feathers flying all around him. And what I love about the covers specifically for these three chapters is they all have this take on a different genre of storytelling. Marco is covered in blood, sword hanging down in this sort of like square shouldered, covered in blood, but staring solemnly off in the distance pose. It's just like 100% samurai, like Kurosawa movie, just immediately hearkening to that visual image. And then chapter eight does a similar thing and is actually maybe my single favorite image from the entire series. It's this image of Alana with headphones, earbuds in her ears, blowing this giant pink bubblegum bubble while sitting on a jet engine reading D. Oswald Heist's book. And it feels like this homage to sort of like 90s Gen X burnout stories. Mm. Like there's this comic Ghost World from the 90s or like the movie Slackers. She's even got like that short A-line haircut that like Winona Ryder had in the 90s. And she's just like cool woman just hanging out, reading her book, listening to music, doesn't give a fuck about authority. And I I love that. And then for chapter nine, you get fully just a romance novel. The Will as a shirtless Fabio guy and the damsel in distress is the stock. And so it's like, you get to see Fiona playing with all of these different genres and it just becomes more and more of a thing for her to play with to sort of represent or not what happens in that particular chapter. It's like this different piece of art And all of these covers, honestly, all the covers for all the comics on this are so good. If there was somehow a way to tell what image from Saga the most people had gotten tattoos of, I would guess it's probably that Alana illustration just because it is so cool, but also so sort of like quiet and just encapsulates the kind of vibe of all of the elements of the book of the like, it's human, but it's she's on some sort of wild ass spaceship and this crazy battle armor and she has wings, but she's chewing gum and, and listening to her earbuds. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, it's so good. Are you implying we should get saga tattoos together, Alan? Because I'm down. That's you assuming I don't already have a saga tattoo. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't have any tattoos. Okay. So those are my, once again, I cheated in broke format. Did Love you, it. Abu, follow directions on the assignment for your favorite panel? This time I did. And I will say the only reason I did is because there is one particular panel in today's reading that will forever stick with me. And instantly upon rereading these chapters, I was like, yep, that's it. No competition. This is the panel. And it's the one where we get the iconic Hazel line that says, quote, this is how my parents met. It's that panel where Alana and Marco are looking at each other through the barrier of his cell making eye contact. And I'm going to get a little geeky about this panel, so bear with me. I'm probably overthinking some of this, but I'm just going to sort of geek out a bit because I love so much about this panel beyond just how iconic it is. The framing is so, so incredible. And I refuse to believe that so much of it wasn't intentional. So no, go for it. Close reading on Saga is what we're here for. (laughs) And I think you're right that like, this is not that freshman English class where you're like making up artist's intent that's not actually there, I believe that all of the symbolism here is 100% intentional. So break it down. Yeah. So first and foremost, I want to call out that we as the reader know there is a barrier between Marco and Alana. He is in a cell. There's this orange electric laser barrier between them. But in this side shot, the barrier is almost invisible. It is just a single thin orange line that runs down between these two characters. From this perspective, we would never know there was a barrier between them. It just looks like a part of the wall behind them. And that has got to be so intentional. The barrier between these two lovers-to-be is breaking down in this moment. 
And Fiona is telling us that through the artwork without anyone sort of giving us like ham-fisted exposition. Incredible way to frame that. We as the reader know there's a barrier in this panel, though. If you saw this panel without any other context, you would never in a million years guess there was a wall between these two characters. Secondly, Hazel's narration here is written at a slanted angle. It starts on the left with where Alana's eyes are and follows their sight lines looking down to where Marco is kneeling and looking up at her. So not only is that narration forcing us to realize these two characters are making a connection, sort of making eye contact, but it makes us follow that eye contact as we have to read those words. And that to me, again, just the way the art is forcing us to acknowledge so much of the subtext of what's happening in this moment between these two people that are about to go on this crazy journey together and create a family. And finally, the last thing I want to point out is the actual physical positioning of their bodies in the frame. Alana is standing up and looking down at Marco, who is presumably kneeling and looking up at her. And what does that remind you of? What does that make you think of? For me, it looks like a moment where Marco would be proposing to her. And again, that's the part where I'm like, maybe I'm reading too much into it. But to me, this looks like a scene where Marco is on his knees proposing to Alana, foreshadowing, obviously, their their future life together to come. So those three things, the barrier disappearing between them, the words forcing us to recognize them making eye contact and making a connection, and then their positions implying this like sort of iconic kneeling marriage image all comes together in this beautiful panel that says so much without saying anything at all. So I am with you on the first two, and especially the second point. The way in which whomever did the lettering layout for this book uses that as a tool visually is wonderful. It reminds me of like movies that do a good job of representing text messaging on screen, or they actually like put their subtitles in a place that's intentional. It's like, oh, this is another visual element to use when telling the story. So it's literally... When the narration says, this is how my parents met, you're literally seeing the like sparks fly between their eyeballs as they're looking across this barrier. The third thing though, I don't know if that's meant to evoke marriage as much as it's meant to evoke the power dynamic that we still see for Mm. me in Alana and Marco's relationship, even after they're married. For the most part, Marco does what Alana tells him to do. That's just like their dynamic. Within a lot of relationships, there's usually somebody who takes more of an assertive role and somebody who's more of a caretaker. And it seems like literally from the beginning, Marco was going to be in this place where, I mean, it's because he's chained to the ground in the cell, but like figuratively, he is going to be somewhat more submissive to Alana being the one who is like badass, forceful and in charge. And I think we see a little bit of that, obviously not to the extent that she ever strikes him again after she hits him in the face with this. But it is interesting to see that like the first act of violence that occurs between them is her hitting him. And like there is that aggression built in there, which clearly has been resolved because it has never come up other than in this flashback. But it's just, yeah, the the panel specifically that this is how my parents met. You picked your favorite panel first. If not, I probably would have picked that one. Yeah. It's just everything about it is so perfect. It's a meet cute, but it's also everything about it. Like you said, I hadn't even thought about the part about like if you just see that side shot, it looks like the force field is not actually a force field. It's just decoration on the wall. Just it's it's brilliant. Yeah, it's brilliant. Gives me chills. Okay, let's wrap it up. Alan, I would love to know what your favorite quote was from today's reading. So a lot of Brian K. Vaughn's writing is really rich and really detailed and just very like world building. But I also love that it's clever and that you get these zinger lines, essentially, that can tell you so much about a character. So when the Will first meets Gwendolyn, I already talked about this, but they go into this whole sort of like witty repartee that's like a 1930s private eye banter thing, which like for having never met each other before, they're zipping back and forth. And it culminates with the will insinuating that like Gwendolyn and Marco have had some kind of romantic past for her to care so much about finding him. And she responds when he insinuates this by saying, absolutely not. Like, you know, I think she doth protest too much. <laughs> to which Lion Cat does his thing and says, lying. And then the will gets just the best line, which the will gets to say, hell, a dead dog could have told me that. Which... <laughs> 
It's just like such amazing pulp, like yeah. 30s detective yeah. stuff. And it gives you this sense of the will as definitely he's like some sort of working class guy and he kind of resents the rich bureaucrats who are responsible for the war of which Gwendolyn is one. And so it, it just like he gets a zinger, it puts like a button on that interaction and I love it. I love hell, a dead dog could have told me that. <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah, that line gave me a good chuckle too. Again, uh, I like the will despite his chosen profession. I love him. What about you? What was the writing that stuck out to you through these chapters? So I'm going to give Alana the victory here for best quote from today's chapters. It's the scene where Barr tells Alana about his terminal illness and he is clutching his chest. And she says, you're weak. You need rest. And his response is, no, I want to create this armor clothing for my family. I want them to be safe after I'm gone. And her response is, quote, Fuck that. Whatever disease you have, we'll find a way to beat it. End quote. And such an on-brand response for Alana. That is exactly what you would expect Alana to say to something like that. In the face of the impossible, her reaction is always, fuck it, we'll figure it out. It's fine. It's probably not impossible. We can do it. And on one level, that's an ideology that I can totally get behind. I love that about Alana. But on another level, there's sort of this sadder depth to this scene about the contrast between these two parents. I talked about the parallels earlier about how both parents are doing whatever they can to protect their children. Here, it's clear that there's a difference in, in ideologies. Barr, who is obviously much older and has seemingly lived a full life has come to terms with his ultimate demise. He has come to accept it. And ultimately what he's now focused on is making sure that the people he leaves behind, his loved ones are safe and protected. And he leaves behind something for them that his death is not in vain. This sort of mindset is not something that Alana can accept, right? She's too young. She's too idealistic. This is not something you would ever imagine Alana just laying down and accepting. She would go to the ends of the earth to figure out an alternative. And obviously she is doing that for her daughter, right? Mm -hmm. Alana and Marco are doing this impossible thing in a galaxy. Literally, it's Alana, Marco, and Hazel against the world. And she is going to the ends of the galaxy to protect her daughter. She's fighting tooth and nail to protect her family against a galaxy full of people hell-bent on killing them. That's just who Alana is. And it's heartbreaking and inspiring and just her reaction, this scene, everything about it really spoke to me. And I really can't decide whose side I'm on and whose ideology I agree with. On one level, I'm kind of on Barr's side. When your time is coming, you need to come to terms with it. On the other side, my gut tells me, fuck that. Whatever disease you have, we'll find a way to beat it. Well, and also like Alana already had a child with someone she was never supposed to even have an interaction with, let alone have a relationship, and they had a child. So as far as quote unquote impossible things yeah. or sure things, yeah. like anything is impossible within what they've done. And I think that's something that this book does a lot is it's grounded in the reality of things like life and death and war and conflict and violence. But at the same time, like fantastical weird things happen that are almost sort of magic realism. And so you're like, well, yeah, maybe there is a spell that could cure this dude, right? Like Marco was about to die. Like there was a spell for that. Maybe there would be a spell that could cure Bar. But it seems also like if there was one, he would know about it. He's also, again, lived a long life and gotten to see what he wanted to see. So, but I think you're right. Yeah, it's that Alana is never someone to take something lying down. It goes all the way back to that line she has from the first episode where her dad apparently accepted a lot of things in his life because, quote unquote, he had a family and that's what he had to do. And so for her, that seems yeah. like taking anything lying down is just not some shit that she's going to be able or willing to go along with. And so I love the way that this is written just because of the way that Brian K. Vaughn uses really straightforward like vernacular English. Fuck that. <laughs> yeah. Whenever... He drops things like that in. I delight in it. We go back and forth between like very contemporary vernacular English and then like very, you know, spaced out like epic language, grandiose. And I love the way that it goes back and forth. It grounds things. It feels very compelling. And 
you know, I, I can absolutely see that just being like, mm, no, fuck that. Right. It's great. Right. It, it's Alana's groundedness on one end of the spectrum and Fard's poetic, poetic <laughs> words about piss and anuses on the other end. But the best part about that is kind of poetic because he's talking about souls, how he's going to take their souls. And anyway, anyway, clearly we have gone over these words more times than probably most people, but I think that there's there, there. I delight in it. All righty, Alan. That's another episode in the books. We did it. Chapters seven, eight, and nine, deep dive complete. It was, again, it was so hard to stop. Like we're at this pace now where the story is moving faster and faster. So I'm ready to dive right in and read chapters 10, 11, and 12. Everyone who's listened to this podcast, do the same. Make sure you've read through chapter 12, the rest of volume two before our next read along episode. But a reminder, chapter 55, issue 55 of Saga, the first new chapter in three and a half years comes out on January 26th. And if you are already all caught up on Saga, you've read the full 54 chapter run so far. We're going to get a hold of a copy of chapter 55 as soon as is humanly possible, pour over it, and do some kind of special bonus episode. So yeah. be on the lookout for that. If you've read all the way through all the chapters already, check it out. If you haven't, please don't listen to that one because it will be nothing but spoilers. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, I'm excited for that little immediate reaction bonus episode. I'm excited to dive into new chapters for the first time in three years. So be on the lookout for that. And of course, make sure you've read through chapter 12 for the next read-along episode. Well, friends, as we've said before, two minds can sometimes improve the odds of a podcast survival, but there are no guarantees. So leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, or now, if you're a Spotify person, Spotify's got reviews there too, so head into the Spotify app and give us a five-star review. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network at loreparty.com. One of our other shows has come back with a new season recently, all about The Witcher, which I have not watched or listened to, but I've heard is amazing. Yeah, you gotta get on that, Alan. I'm on that show too. You can hear even more of my voice <laughs> in your ears all day, every day. You can also follow the network on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Music for the show was composed by Lawrence Kelly, who makes all kinds of incredible stuff. You can follow him on Twitter at produced by underscore LK. And if you're so inclined, you can follow Alan on Twitter at a Haberchak, and you can follow me at Abu underscore Zafar. Thank you all so much for listening to our show. And remember, podcasts are fragile things. But just like Alana, Marco, and Hazel, we'll all just keep on exploring and learning together. And Fard. Let's not forget about Fard. Fard forever in our brains. Burned, burned, burned. <laughs>